hope we see and understand that wherever God has called us to work in our daily lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we can do it to the glory of God. Amen? Whatever it is. So praise God that he set us free to do that. Let me, um, well, actually, today begins this first Sunday of Advent. And what we're going to be doing as a church of Ventura is we're going to be following the tradition of many Christians throughout the century as we focus on the themes of Advent, which are listed here, hope and love and joy and peace. Each Sunday we'll take one of these themes, and what we're going to do is we're going to see how that biblical word is taught in the Old Testament scriptures and how then Jesus fulfills that. But we won't stop there with just Jesus coming 2,000 years ago. We're also going to see how that reality in the Old Testament speaks to us today as we look forward to Jesus coming again. So that, so that each sermon each week is going to see the promises of God leading to first Advent, or maybe we'd say the first Christmas, and then how those promises encourages us to the second Christmas, when Jesus comes again. So today we're actually focused on the theme of hope. What does that word even mean? What, what is hope? When you hear that word, you might think, you might think of creating a Christmas wish list. How many of you do Christmas wish lists? No, seriously, like raise your hands. If you do a Christmas wish list, come on. Even adults like, well, I, okay, I do too, right? We all, we, we all state things that we hope we might get for Christmas. And, and children and adults who are like children, like me, you might lay in bed and go, I sure hope I get that thing. But you know what, I'm not gonna be disappointed if I get the thing, I just, you know, hope I do. And maybe you get it. Maybe you don't get it. And when we hear the word hope, we might think that's what the Bible's talking about. It's something that we wish for, but we may or may not get it. But that's not actually the idea of either the Old Testament's teaching on hope or the New Testament's teaching on hope. The, the words that are actually used in the Hebrew and the Greek are different. They're fuller than just wishful thinking. The Greek word for hope is the word elpis. And if you like Greek mythology, you know that there was one god by the name of elpis. And there's this story uh, of, of the gods who were angry with this, this other uh, being, Prometheus, if you're familiar with him. And pr because Prometheus gave fire to human beings, which meant he gave a lot of power to human beings. So the gods, in anger towards Prometheus, they create a woman. That, that's not the end. Um, they, they create a woman, and then they give, they give a, a box or a jar to, to this woman. And her name is Pandora. Box. You see where this might be going. All the gods put in their unique gift for Pandora. And she receives the gift from the gods and she opens up the box. And all these gifts come flying out into the world. And in general, these gifts lead to misery, despair, plagues, diseases. 
and Pandora seeks to close up the box. And as she, as she finally is able to close up this box, there's one gift that, that got stuck and it remains in that box. And it's the gift that Elpis gave. It's hope. Hope is stuck inside. Now, there's, I think, multiple interpretations of this story. I think everyone would agree that in that story, what we do see is hope has remained untainted by this fallen, broken, disease-filled world. But what we can draw from this story, too, I believe, is we have a question. Can we have hope in this world? Or does hope just remain locked up in a box? Can When we live in a world with brokenness and sorrow, and we have hope, that might just feel like a carrot before a donkey. It, it was just playing a game with us. Can I really have hope when this world and my life feels like it's falling apart? Or should I just create my own meaning, do what I think is best, manage life. That, that story and how the Greeks thought about hope, I think that's how a lot of people think today. Give up on hope, you know. I'm in charge of my life. I will figure out what my meaning is, and I'm just going to be satisfied with that. Have you ever been tempted to think that way, or do you know other people who think that way? I'm just going to just going to find hope and meaning in whatever I think. But that's just wishful thinking, right? That's just doing something and, and hoping that it actually matters. But if we understand what that Greek word and Hebrew word means, there's actually what we discover a greater, there's a greater glory and there's more comfort that God is giving to humanity than what, than, than what this world can offer. The meaning of the word hope, biblically, the biblical idea of hope includes anticipation and steadfast assurance. That, that's even the idea of Elpis. So, so they, they thought, we can't have hope in this world. There's no steadfastness. There's no assurance that you can have because all chaos is broken loose. And that's how many people think in this world. Can we have hope? Can we have anticipation and steadfast assurance? Now, I don't know if there really is an English word that, that truly communicates this word for hope. I probably the closest one I could think of is expectation. But even that falls short. In our current day, what we would say to describe hope is that we would say something like, I am so looking forward to this thing that I am absolutely sure is going to happen. That's the word hope. There is a glorious future that I am on my way towards. I cannot get around that. This is what's happening, and I am headed that way. That's the idea of hope, that the future is set. You're on your way there. Okay? Do we understand kind of the definition? Just need to see nods. Okay? All right. Not falling asleep nods. Like, okay? So it's going to happen. That's hope. Now, what does that all have to do with Jesus coming 2,000 years ago? It actually has everything. Because we've entered into this Christmas season, and, and what we're going to see with 
cards and uh, people's stories, you know, as you get the pictures of families coming in the mail. And, and as you celebrate with family, there's going to be a lot of happiness, right? Or at least it seems like we're happy, right? Everything was great. It was so wonderful. Oh, I love Christmas. And I, I love the Christmas season. But have you ever experienced sadness in the Christmas season? Brokenness? Are you probably going to have up and down emotions over this next month? Are you? Yeah. And so we can ask, or even like what I said in last week's sermon, life is made up of highs, lows, the exciting, the mundane, and that happens in the Christmas season too. And our question that we can have is what stabilizes us in the tensions, the highs and lows of life? What does? And, and the Bible would answer that question by saying biblical hope. A biblical hope stabilizes us. And that hope is found in Jesus, who was born as a baby 2,000 years ago. That stabilizes us in the ups and downs. So, so the Christmas message of hope ought to be extremely applicable to us. And so the main idea of the sermon today is simply this. Jesus secures our hope in this life. Part of the Christmas message is Jesus secures our hope in this life as we anticipate the life to come. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break apart just that main idea. And we're going to start with Jesus secures our hope. Jesus secures our hope in this life. Well, what I want to do is I want to take that twofold idea of hope. I want to take anticipation and assurance, and I want us to look into the Old Testament to see how did God work in such a way to build anticipation for his people, and then alongside that anticipation, give assurance to the people and build assurance in the people, leading us all the way to when Jesus fulfills the hope. Then we'll move on to the second part and anticipate the life to come, okay? If that didn't make sense, just follow along. When we go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, we know what happens. Instead of Adam and Eve imaging God forth through faithful rule and worship of God, what they decide to do is they seek their own authority within themselves and they break free from God's, God's rule and God's love and God's grace. So they take food that didn't belong to them and wasn't given to them. And they show a rebellious heart in that against God. So God punishes Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve begin to experience the effects of death. Now, because Adam and Eve are also representatives of God, they are the clearest representatives of God in this world. All creation suffers under their punishment. Because they're the representatives of God. They are to rule the earth. They're fallen. Therefore, all creation is fallen. And death enters and suffering comes in. But even in the midst of that, almost immediately, it seems, after their rebellion, God offers a promise. Not just offers. He gives a promise of hope to them. That he tells Eve that there's going to be a seed of the woman that is going to crush the serpent. And from that point in Genesis, Moses, the author of Genesis, uh, becomes very interested in genealogies. 
Why is he interested in genealogies? We're not often interested in genealogies. How many of you love it when you get to the genealogical sections? Okay? But it's very interesting in Moses' writing because what he's doing is he's building anticipation, right? Because he's saying, where is this seed going to come? What, what, what line is this seed going to come from? Is it going to come from this son or this son? And is it going to come from this child or this child? And how do we follow that, that lineage? Okay, so he's building anticipation. This world has fallen. This world is broken. God has promised hope. Is hope coming? And Moses writes, yes, here, here, and look at and follow and get this. And then eventually you get to this man by the name of Abraham, or Abram at first. But God sets him apart unto himself. And then God makes a promise to Abram, Abraham. And he says that you're going to be the father of a great nation. And he says that this seed that is going to come from you, through this seed, the, the nations are going to be blessed. Now, it's interesting because we find that it's in the, the singular, it's seed. So it's not just all of Abraham's uh, children are the ones to bless the whole nation, but there's this one that's going to come from Abraham, and that one is going to bless all the nations, which means, which means that this one is going to be a ruler over the nations, unlike Adam who was unfaithful, this one's going to rule faithfully over all the nations. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through this one. So by this point in time, you know, you'd be reading Genesis and you're like, yes, the serpent crusher is coming now. And then you read more and you're like, no, now. Oh, like, like when is he coming? My goodness, this is taking a long time. And you wait years and then you get to decades Abraham's waited decades, and by this time, Abraham is, is about 100 years old. And I want you to hear how the Apostle Paul describes Abraham in the midst of the waiting. I have it up here on the screen. You can follow along. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, which, by the way, she's about 90. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God made a promise, right, that's in the future. So if God says something's going to happen, is it going to happen? Yep. No matter what happens, Abraham's on his way to the fulfillment of that promise. And so we see how Paul writes in here. He says, in hope, <laughs> he hoped against hope. It's a play on words here. He, he, he believed, he trusted in the Lord. God's promise was that he would have a seed. So even though Abraham was 100 years old, he anticipated God's promise. And we also see this anticipation had assurance with it, right? Abraham wasn't just hoping and saying, well, you know, I mean, God said he'd give it, but maybe, <laughs> maybe our bodies can't handle this anymore. No, he believed. Abraham was anticipating, he was assured he was going to receive it because God had promised it. 
And then God gave Abraham a child. And while that child was not the seed, the child is next in line in the genealogy. And that child is going to lead to this nation. And then through the seed in that nation, he's going to crush the serpent and all the nations will be blessed. And that seed is going to kill death and sin. Now, why do I say all of that? Because Abraham, his hope and his faith was to serve as an example to the entire nation of Israel. And his hope not only is to serve as an example to the nation of Israel, but as we read even in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere, that those in the past are to serve as an example to us of how we are to live and function today. Abraham's hope is to serve us, to encourage us to steadfast assurance and anticipation. But let's just look at the nation of Israel. They, they are called to follow the example of Abraham. And when you go to the book of Psalms, that's the songbook for the nation. It's, it's the words that are to get stuck in your minds. You see hope peppered throughout this songbook. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few. Psalm 39.7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. You see how waiting and hope go together, just like it was with Abraham? For what do I wait? My hope is in you. Or Psalm 69, 6, David says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. David is, is a pointer to the future ruler, and he recognizes he's not the Messiah, not the serpent crusher. But he is, he is an example, and he's saying, don't, don't let the people in the nation be put to shame because of anything that I would do wrong. Our hope is in you. We're waiting. Or Psalm 71.5, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. It's not simply that we hope in God, but God is our hope. Right? He himself is who we long for. And then there's one other psalm that I want to focus on, and I don't have it on the screen here. If you have your Bibles, go to Psalm 130. We're going to see in Psalm 130 this, this call to the people of Israel to wait and hope on the Lord. Wait for the promise to be fulfilled and hope in God. Oh, actually, I mistakenly lied. I do have it on the screen behind me. So if you don't have your Bible, follow along. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now this psalm is referred to as one of the psalms of ascent. 
And the Psalms of Ascent were sung by the people as they were traveling from their regions to Jerusalem. And it's, it's ascent because they're going up the hill of the Lord, up to Jerusalem, to the temple. And as they sang these Psalms of Ascent, it wasn't just truths that were true while they're journeying to Jerusalem. These are truths to be stuck in their minds of how they are to live life and to remember as they sojourn, so to speak, as they travel through life, they're traveling to God's throne that they will see one day. And so we can actually see the Psalms of Ascent speak to us as we sojourn in this world, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So, so this psalm is the Psalm of Ascent, it's sung by the people, and the psalmist recognizes here his own brokenness, his own pain, and he's pleading for mercy. Pleading for mercy because he knows his own sins. He recognizes that if God should mark, pinpoint, his iniquities, if he pinpointed any human being's iniquities, no human being would stand before him. Do you feel that? Any time you fall short of giving God the glory he absolutely deserves, that is, falling short of the glory of God, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans, is sin. So we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the psalmist says, if you mark these things, there's no hope. And then he says, but with you, there is forgiveness. God gives and offers forgiveness to people. And it says, so that what? So that you may be, what? What does it say? Do you remember? So that you may be feared. It's not, not living and being scared of God, but living in awe and reverence and respect and honor that you would not want to dishonor him because he is so glorious and he is holy, holy, holy. So God forgives so that he may be feared. And so the psalmist is, is writing this song for them to sing as they're ascending up to the temple. With him, there's forgiveness. He, he doesn't mark your iniquities. And that should cause you to rejoice in him. Because he forgives. And, and, and clearly, the psalmist is saying, when he forgives, your life is changed. But it's changed for a certain purpose. To be like Abraham. Wait. Isn't that, isn't that where he goes? Look at. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Verse 5, I wait. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. Hope and waiting go together. He's made a promise. I'm going to get there, but I have to wait. But I hope with steadfast assurance. And so then, as the people are singing, then it gets to the end of the psalm. Oh, Israel. So it's a call to everyone listening. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in him. Because with him is steadfast love plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his sins. Amen. Praise the Lord. Right? The Psalms call every Israelite to follow in Abraham's example, 
trust, hope, and wait. God is bringing forth the seed, the serpent crusher. He will bless the nations through him. Until then, we sojourn in this world. And we who turn from our sins and trust in the Lord experience God's forgiveness and grace. So continue to wait. Now, this is Israel's call. Wait. Hope. But many people in Israel don't really hold on to hope, do they? By the time we get to the prophet Isaiah, we read this from Isaiah's writing in chapter 8. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. In chapter 8, already in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says, bind it up. God has, what does he say? God has hidden his face from the house of Jacob. And what do many people in Israel do then? They scatter, they do their own thing, they don't really trust in the Lord. They might say they follow God, but they're following idols and all sorts of other things. And what does Isaiah do? Does Isaiah say, I give up? What does he do? I will hope in him. He's doing exactly what Abraham did. He hopes against hope. He says, God made a promise. I'm hoping. And then we get to chapter 9 of Isaiah. And we get to a very popular verse at Christmas time in Isaiah chapter 9. And what is that? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. What's that next word? Will. Not might. Not could. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah, hoping against hope, God, has, God has, is not shining his face on them and they are turning from him and they're not remembering him. And Isaiah says, but a child, a child is coming. To us, the son has been given and he is going to rule. He is the mighty God. He is the Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah is an example even to Israel. Wait, hope in the Lord. Will you hope, people? And not only Isaiah, but so many of the other prophets calling the people, hope in the Lord, wait on him, trust in him. And many of the people don't. And eventually, and we even sang about it earlier, you get to a point of 400 years of silence meaning no prophet is speaking in the, nation, in the nation of Israel. I think even during that time, many people lost hope. I mean, maybe some people, they said they believed God was going to do it, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if they anticipated it anymore. Because by the time we actually get to 2,000 years ago, hope arrives in Jesus. And we have people who seem to believe the Messiah was going to come, but they didn't really anticipate, meaning look forward to it. 
right? Even in the beginning of the story of the gospel, we hear of them uh, trembling in fear because of this potential Messiah that's here. But one of the things that I love about the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus coming, are the people who, who believed and looked forward to it. We hear of some of those individuals. I mean, Mary seems to be one of them. She's, she's astounded that God has chosen her to be able to bear the Messiah, the chosen one, the seed of the woman, the serpent crusher. And her response is praise to God, quoting scripture. I mean, it, it's verbatim quotes from scripture, and she's praising the Lord with his own words to him. That she clearly had assurance and anticipation that the Messiah was coming. There's two other people that I, that I love to read about in the Christmas story. One uh, is Simeon, and the other one is, is Anna. Simeon. Many people tend to think Simeon was a priest. Did you know that the Bible never says that? Did you know that? Go, go back and look in the text. It doesn't say he's a priest. He's just in the temple, and he's in the temple courts. Maybe he was. I don't know. What we do know, and what the scriptures do tell us, is that he's a very old man. And this man, we're told, uh, let's see here. Ooh, lost my place. We're told that God promised him that he would remain alive until he saw the Messiah. So when Mary and Joseph and Jesus enter into the courts, the spirit moves on Simeon, and Simeon knows who this baby is. And Luke writes that Simeon had been waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. He'd been waiting. What's he doing? He's following Psalm 130. He's following the example of Abraham, waiting for the consolation, waiting for the hope to come. And then he just takes Jesus into his arms, and, and he declares this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Salvation has come. With God is forgiveness, steadfast love, plentiful redemption. Salvation had come. Can you just picture this elderly man in the temple and his eyes light up with joy? I can die now because I have seen salvation. I've seen the hope of Israel. Then we have Anna. Anna, who was a widow for 84 years. And we're told that she worships the Lord night and day in the temple. And when she sees Jesus, we're told that she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So it's not just her who's waiting. There's clearly other people around who have been waiting, and she's telling all of them, waiting for redemption to come. You hear Psalm 130 in here. Anna, Simeon, they've been hoping in the Lord. They've been anticipating. They've been waiting, and they were assured by God. So much so that they stick around the temple. It's got to come. 
And finally, Jesus enters into the courts and joy wells up inside of them. Hope has arrived in human flesh. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the seed of the woman, the serpent crusher was before their very eyes. He was born of this young, poor girl, this virgin, miraculously. Why? Why? He came to conquer death and sin. And Jesus did conquer death and sin. He lived the life Adam didn't live. Jesus became the new representative of a new creation. He himself is perfect in every way and perfectly obeyed the Father. And he also endured the suffering that sinners deserve. If you remember Psalm 130, if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? Right? I want you to think of it this way. God marked all the iniquities of all of his children throughout, throughout time past and time future and on the cross put them on Jesus Christ. He marked all the iniquities so that the scriptures say he became sin who knew no sin. So that anyone who trusts in Christ, anyone who turns from their sinfulness and goes to God for rescue so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Whoa! With him is plentiful redemption. It's not only forgiveness, but now if you have trusted in Jesus, you are a child of God and you are righteous in God's sight. You can enter into his presence with joy and thanksgiving. You see how Jesus fulfills the longing of hope? This world is broken. This world is full of trials and problems. And God says, I have a promise. Hope, hope in me. Hope, hope, hope. Then Jesus arrives and Jesus conquers death and sin. But it doesn't just stop there. We would think back then, Jesus conquers death, sin, and just like the disciples thought, and now the kingdom comes to this earth and all sin is eradicated. That would seem to make sense to our minds. But that's not what happens. What does Jesus do? Jesus ascends up into heaven and says, I'm sending another comforter, the Holy Spirit, to guide you into all truth. Now declare this new message for this new creation. How are people birthed in this new creation? It's not like how it was in the old creation. People are birthed in the new creation by proclaiming the gospel message. The Holy Spirit will help you and guide you to declare it to people until Jesus comes again. And Jesus says he goes to prepare a place for us, right? So that's, that's something that's happening for us, right? And if God makes a promise, is it going to happen? Yes. So that's our hope. What Jesus has done to secure something in the future that if you're a Christian, you're headed there. Amen? Okay. Then how ought we to live on the basis of that? This takes us to that second point of the main idea. Jesus secures our hope. So as we think back to Jesus' first coming and what he has accomplished, we then see God keeps his promises. God, God fulfills what he says he's going to fulfill. Then we say, now we anticipate the life to come. Now we live in similar fashion in looking forward to a second advent. 
knowing that God's going to keep his promises. So the question, again, how then should we live? And I want you uh, to go to Hebrews 10. I do have it on the screen behind me too, but you can have your Bibles out to Hebrews 10. But Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, this is all talking about Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the author of Hebrews likes to add a lot of phrases and words that add beauty. I'm not going to go into all of the phrases here. I'm going to break it down and say that essentially what the author is saying is that in light of Jesus' first coming and what he accomplished there through his death and resurrection, and also the reality of him coming again, which is the day drawing near, we ought to respond in three ways. This is what the author is telling us. So in light of what Jesus has done and in light of the fact that he's coming again, there's three responses that we should have as Christians as we anticipate future Christmas, future Advent. First, draw near in fellowship to God. Fellowship with him. Therefore, because Jesus has, Jesus has torn this, this curtain so that you can have direct access with God, fellowship with God. Christians, I have, I have talked with so many professing Christians at different points in time, and, and I have discovered so many people who don't really fellowship or commune with God. Praying, reading the word, being saturated with what God is speaking and saying to you. And that causes me to have a couple of questions. First is, are you a Christian? But then the second one is, if you are a Christian, you've got to repent. Because God changes you so that you hunger and thirst for him. And that's why the author of Hebrews, he, he's even writing to a group of Christians who are, who are drifting. And so he's reminding them of what Jesus has done. And he says, draw near to God. This is your privilege. You have been set free by Jesus Christ. You are not like Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden with cherubim, having their swords keeping you from access. You have full and complete access with God, the creator of everything. Draw near to him. Fellowship with him. Day in, day out, you have that freedom. Secondly, together with God's people, remain in our hope-filled confession. You see verse 23? In verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What is the confession of our hope? Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, ascended and is coming again that's the confession of our hope but he has to remind us let us hold fast that and he says us together why us 
It's just like the nation of Israel as they're on their traveling to Jerusalem. They're singing to each other, reminding them of the hope they have in God. Why? Because we need each other. Sometimes I lose hope. Do you ever lose hope? You ever go about your week and, you, and you're blessed by some other believer who then encourages you and fills you with more hope in Jesus Christ? He's saying, let us together, let us always remember to keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus Christ, God's glory in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, what he has done and what he's going to do. Hold fast to this, believers. This is what Christmas teaches us. And then finally, let us gather and exhort one another regularly. That's such an interesting statement. And I think it seems so interesting to us in a Western culture because in the Western culture, we're extremely individualistic. We are, you know, be your own person, uh, try, to, try to do it your way. Um, you're successful if you're accomplished on your own. That is just not the biblical mindset. It's not doing things on our own. Instead, what the author of Hebrews says here is that let us, let us not forsake the gathering of ourselves together as is the habit of some. Now, now, some people will take that and they'll get a principle and they'll say, so therefore, we will always be at church on Sundays, which is a fine principle, but that's not all it says. You know that, right? It says, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but... What? Exhort one another. So listen, if you gather with the church and you sit in a chair and you hurry up right at the end and leave, did you fulfill it? No, you didn't. Because we need to exhort each other. Why do we need to exhort each other? Same reason why I just said before. We need one another. The Bible says we minister grace to the hearers. God's grace is ministered through his children to his children. So we need each other. We need to regularly, not just on Sundays, but we need to throughout the week to encourage, exhort, build up, challenge, strengthen, remind ourselves of the hope we have in Jesus Christ and remind ourselves that someday we will all together be feasting in the house of Zion before the presence of our God. We need to gather and exhort each other. Why? Because we really are the people who have all hope. This is how hope-filled people live. Yes, this world is falling apart. Yes, this Christmas season, there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows. And I can lament and weep before my God and also have stability in the midst of it. Because my God is so good. And so wait on the Lord. Hope in him, there is steadfast love. There is plentiful redemption. So where do you find yourself? Are you encouraged? Are you excited? Are you discouraged, despairing, somewhere in between any of these? The message of Advent is there is a Savior on whom we can hang all of our hope. We actually can have hope in this world as we sojourn because Jesus secures our hope in this life as we anticipate the life to come. Amen? We're going to sing in a moment. I'm going to pray before we sing, and I just want to invite you. At the end of the song, we'll have the benediction, and there's going to be people up here. 
If you've never trusted in Christ and you have questions about what that means, please come and talk to us. If you just need us to pray for you for whatever struggles you're facing or even joys you want to share, come up and talk with us. We want to share in that hope and we want to share in encouraging each other to continue to hope in the Lord. So let's pray. Father, how good and gracious you are. We did not come up with the plan for how to rescue ourselves because we, we think we can do it on our own. Oh, but God, thank you that you have shown mercy to promise us a future hope and to fill us with faith to believe, to trust, to wait on you. God, I don't know where the people are here today. I know somewhat where I am, but I thank you that the Spirit is here in this world and even here in our midst. And so I'm asking, Father, that your Spirit would give the comfort, the assurance, the anticipation that we need not only so that we can spend it on ourselves, but so that we can even encourage each other even this morning or this week and in the weeks and months to come. God, empower us with your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would stand with me. Now hear and receive these words. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.